My name is Steve Gould. I'm a professional drummer and an amateur thinker. My favorite part of life is learning, which is great because there's so much to learn. That's what this show is for. Thinking out loud, discussing ideas, sharing conversation, listening, growing, and hopefully learning something. The Steve Gould Show. Greetings, everyone. Thanks for listening to another episode of The Steve Gould Show. Starting things off with new experiences. Okay, the past year, when I think about things that are new in my life, aside from all the stuff that I discussed in the first episode, you know, major changes about where I'm living and my marital status, where I'm working, all that kind of stuff. One thing that the pandemic and the quarantine forced into my life was the need to cook and an opportunity to learn how to cook. First off, I don't have my regular habits of going to restaurants. I don't have that option when all the restaurants are shut down. And I tell you what, that really helped my bank account. I had no idea how much money I was spending on food until I couldn't spend any more money at restaurants. Buying groceries and cooking at home is so much more cost effective. For me, however, when I make my own meals, up to this point, it's been very transactional. My ex-wife, Kristen, was a fantastic cook. She remains a fantastic cook. And when we lived together, she did all the cooking. I didn't need to do any cooking. Unless, for some reason, I was home by myself. And then it's like, all right, let's get in and get out. Let's get this done with as fast as possible. I used to make myself like four eggs and a fistful of blueberries. And that was my meal. Which, once I began cooking for myself regularly, during the quarantine, I'm not being cooked for and there aren't any restaurants to cook for me. Had to figure out some other options. Learned a few things from Misty along the way. Liquid aminos by Bragg's. Liberal use of the Bragg's liquid aminos. Misty also has this trick of using a soft-boiled egg as like a condiment. Putting it on almost anything. Break that egg open, let the yolk run everywhere. Okay, that's pretty great. I learned how to make this sweet potato hash with red pepper and tofu. That's pretty good. But just in general, learning the basic principles of how to cook well. It's been really gratifying, empowering, saving a lot of money. I'm eating what I want to eat and I'm enjoying how that's expanding my consciousness and my understanding of what it means to be human. I mean, that might sound a little grandiose, but I mean it like having someone else cook for me whether that's a restaurant or another person, it creates a disconnect between myself and the elements of physical existence, like the soil and the moisture and water in the world, sunlight, farming, uh, ranching. I'm, I'm, I'm imagining life 200 years ago, butcher shops and farms and bakeries, people with their hands in the game of cooking and creating food. Life is sustained by food. And the modern world, I wonder if we've done ourselves a huge disservice with Grubhub and Uber Eats and fast food restaurants. People pulling through a window, grabbing a bag of food, 
that they had no part in creating and eating it. It, it, I think it creates a disconnect between us and a very important aspect of what it means to be human. So this new experience of cooking for me, it hasn't been just a money saver. It hasn't been just a fun creative experience. I mean, it is those things, but it's also, it feels like a really important visceral connection to human life. And I'm imagining like 20 years from now, maybe I'm going to be like a really good cook. I want that for myself. We'll see. We'll see where things are at. It's it's a, as much as I can handle now to be a good dad and be a good musician, try to get some free time doing things I enjoy. Hopefully cooking becomes something that I do on a regular basis, even now that the restaurants are back open. I can see the value in it in its own right. It's inspiring. I'm thrilled about my guest for this episode of the Steve Gould Show, Dave King. Internationally acclaimed drummer and composer, Dave is also a good friend of mine because he was my teacher when I was 19, 20, 21. During those years of college, I was at a Bible school studying theology, but I had wrangled some private lessons with him as just a professional jazz drummer who lived in the Twin Cities area. Dave is now one of, if not the most respected avant-garde jazz drummer in the world. But back then, he was just performing in the Twin Cities and doing some national-level touring. But he was not as famous as he is now. And so I, I had the good fortune of studying with him privately. At one point, we were doing two lessons a week. And I was so hungry and dedicated at that time that he would give me these really difficult assignments, which I would practice for three to four hours every day in order to get them done for the next lesson so I could get another assignment. In addition to that, I was seeing him perform locally in the Twin Cities almost once a week and getting to hang out afterwards with the band at a restaurant. Dave Dave was just very inclusive. He, He really took me under his wing as an apprentice not the typical teacher-student relationship, which I just it was so valuable for me at the time. And and to give you some context about these lessons, they, Dave had a rehearsal space in kind of a warehouse area in downtown St. Paul, and there was only one unmarked door to get into it. You had to go up three flights of stairs, and he had students back-to-back. So he'd be finishing with the student prior to me, and I'd be down on the sidewalk waiting for him to come down and let me in, which he got tired of going up and down the stairs in between all of his lessons to let the students in. So he had a key that he would lower in a, like a pail that he had tied to a string out the window of this rehearsal space. So I'm, I'm on the curb and it's like 4 PM in the afternoon. People are walking around downtown St. Paul and he pops his head out the window, three floors above me. Hey, Steve, like look up Hey man, did you bring the weed? Just just yells that and I'm standing down there like 19-year-old kid at a Bible college like um <laughs> people looking at me funny. He's like, "Okay man, whatever. Just just bring it up." <laughs> and lowers the key down in this pail. I grab it out, let myself in the door, come up there. He's like, "Sorry man, I could tell that it made you nervous my joke about the weed." And <laughs> I mean, just, he, he always had me on my heels. I was learning so much 
uh, from watching this guy move through the professional music world and also just his gargantuan encyclopedia of music and art knowledge. Dave knows so much and has been exposed to so much as far as the music world is concerned and all that would come out in the lessons just kind of nonstop. It was a really important time for me and I'm so grateful to Dave for investing in me the way he did. I'm also grateful to him for taking time for this interview today. We caught up for an hour over Zoom. Please enjoy my conversation with Dave King. I'm ready. <laughs> Welcome to the Steve Gould Show. I'm on the Steve Gould Show. <laughs> I'm going to turn my AC off so I don't have that background noise. If you turn your air conditioning off in Phoenix, don't you have 10 minutes to live? Yeah, it's, it's only a matter of time before I'm profusely sweating. Yeah. I, I, would, I would assume that you're used to the summers down there now. Yeah, man. I mean, you know what they say about the dry heat. It's actually not as unpleasant. When I would wake up in Minnesota and it would be 90 or 91 degrees outside with a high humidity, that was worse than it is here. I mean, Misty is looking at me and shaking her head and rolling her eyes and saying, no, I'm wrong. But that's that's how I feel. Yeah. I've been down there during the summer one time, and it was it's, it's shocking. Shocking is the way. Yeah, that's the way to put it. If you're in a, a huge black parking lot at three in the afternoon with no breeze and it's 118 degrees, it's it's shocking. It is a shocking feeling. It's almost like people experience when they come to Minnesota in January, one of those weeks where it gets 15 below. Exactly. They, they live in New York and they think they've like lived through winter and they're like, well, I just lived in New York. Winter is, you know, and I'm like, no, 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 no. It's 15 below at all times of the day, all 24 hours for a week straight. Yeah, it's very different when 30 below wind chill hits you in the face when it's 15 <laughs> below temperature. <laughs> How long have you lived in Minnesota, man? I I um I grew up here, and then I moved, you know, um, shortly after high school, and I went out east for a tiny bit because I kind of pounded around Boston and New York to see if there was a. I was very young, eighteen, nineteen, and then I moved to Los Angeles for six or seven years. Oh, that's right, I forgot about that. And then I moved back. I met you around that time because I was moving to. I was going to move back to New York, and I met Mike Lewis, the saxophonist when we formed Happy Apple. And mm -hmm. I met him and a couple of other great musicians. And I was like, wow, there's a world-class element of people playing music in such a band-friendly community. You know, lots of venues and known for its kind of, you know, rock and punk rock, indie scene and hip hop. And But then there were this coterie of really strong improvisers as well, Mike Lewis being only 18 at the time and I thought man wouldn't it be interesting to try and develop something more of a band and that's why I ended up staying man okay let's get into that for a second because my friends and I talk a lot about something in the water in Minneapolis like the Minneapolis music scene the Minneapolis art scene in general yeah. I'm so proud to have come up there totally I'm Me thankful too. actually for those really formative years of my 20s you're a huge part of that story for me finding you as a teacher and a mentor to kind of guide me into what it means to be an art forward drummer right instead of like a technique forward or like industry forward player like you're like no 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 we're we're here to make people feel shit we're here to make art 
And right. I was like, oh, okay, great. That's what everybody's doing. And then, nope, that's actually a high priority in Minneapolis by comparison to other cities. Like percentage-wise, it seems like folks from the Minneapolis scene care more about art. Would you put it that way? I, that's actually really well put, Steve. I've never heard it put that way. But, you know, obviously at this point, for the last 20-plus years, I've traveled the world 900 times over and all over touring America. I know you have as well, but for me, like 200 plus shows a year for 20 years. And I can honestly say if I didn't, if I wasn't from here, I would be impressed if I visited here and I would, (laughs) I would be intimidated. Minneapolis is a strange combination of like highly detailed people who like creative people who care uh, care about details, care about, like you said, on sort of an art-forward perspective. I mean, it's obviously known as a very famous city for having great art museums and, and these sort of cultural backdrop, diverse cultures for real. People would think, no, Minnesota, and it's like, isn't it just Scandinavian? First of all, I'm not Scandinavian. I don't think you are. No. Huge, huge, you know, Somalian and Hmong populations, hugely diverse uh, food scenes all these other things. And so it out of that comes all these disparate, you know, incredible R&B funk scene, obviously with Prince and a lot of his band members. But then like, you know, the punk rock thing that, you know, basically was invented, American punk rock came out of Minneapolis as far as one of the stronger movements with the Husker Du and replacements, etc. But it's like the audiences, you feel like there's a lot of actual real judgmental energy coming at you if you're not, <laughs> if you're not on a high level. You sense that sort of hardcoreness. That's like it's they don't give it up that easy in this town. That's what I've told a lot of the folks from other cities who ask about, you know, where that comes from. The kind of comments I'm fielding are just the slew of players that are out making waves in the music world at large that are from Minneapolis people talk yeah. to me they're like oh you're from minneapolis too man what's the deal with minneapolis and these players like in you know people that are from nashville and los angeles they view minneapolis the same way that they would view salt lake city or boise or it's just like hey, this is another town that isn't one of the top towns as far as population or whatever it's like nope all the musicians from minneapolis are pretty pretty deep why is that well what you just said is maybe part of it like you, you got to work pretty hard to get a reaction from the audience it's true how did you find that functioning for yourself when when you were starting Happy Apple? And I mean, is that is that part of the well, the drive that that band has? Yeah, well, I think it's a classic thing of like, you know, like when you have a place that's like extreme climates. We were talking about a lot of times that can breed this sort of like prove it thing. I mean, even talking yeah. about the cold, and you and I are like, yeah, but you know, if you're talking to somebody from Chicago about winter, we, no one can touch us. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. We're not going to sit there and hear like the guys in Tortoise talk to us about how hardcore winter is. You know what I mean? <laughs> We're from Minneapolis. You can't top that. <laughs> I've never talked to the guys from Tortoise about how hardcore winter <laughs> you know, is. You know what I'm trying to say, though? If you're like on tour and you're like, you're right. we're the Minneapolis cat. So it has this thing number one like oh those guys are hardcore you know if you combine that with like getting in a van and you're playing like the stuff happy apple played and plays which by the way that band changed my life dave no thank you (laughs) that's the truth i heard happy apple play for the first time with chris morrissey i was 17 years old i think it was part of the solution problem album release shows 
at the artist quarter and I did, I did not know what to do with myself <laughs> up until that point. I had heard jazz. I'd heard rock. I'd heard a, you know, plethora of drum approaches, the way that you approach the instrument. So unique, but then the compositions, like you mentioned, Michael as an improviser, Eric, the way he plays the bass. Yep. And that was at a time for me age wise when I didn't know what the rules were. So I didn't really know why you guys sounded so different from everything I'd heard. I didn't realize you were breaking any rules because no one had told me really the rules. So I was forming the rules, the art rules for music. Like here are the boundaries. Yeah. Coming across your music at that age was so boundary expanding yeah. for me. Well, thank you. I thank mean, you. I, that means a lot to me uh, coming from high level musicians like you and but that's a perfect example of what I mean about how how did that band incubate in that zone? Well, think about it. It's like you have a more hardcore, you know, audience. But at the same time, it's like there's not a many I don't name I can't name many mid-sized American cities where you can play like that and be embraced by a rock community, jazz community, right. like all these different genres. It's like you can you could in Minneapolis you can take that band and go and play in a rock club and people come and they're packing in. They're not sitting there going like, oh, this is rock. Mm -hmm. This is rocking, so I feel comfortable. It's more like, is it good? And then, and that's, I guess, the reason why I ended up investing so much into staying. Number one, I also wanted to have a family at some point, but like children, and it would be difficult to do that in New York, I think, especially when you play jazz. But it's <laughs> it's uh, the 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 acumen that I felt, you know, that those guys had, Mike and Eric, Mike Lewis and Eric Fratsky. I just felt like, well, wait a minute, maybe this is the chit we can play, you know, like. Maybe we're that surprise band that is actually pretty good coming from the outside when we hit New York. Instead of like traceable guys like, oh, you know, that's that kid who plays with, you know, Greg Osby sometimes and then he plays with whoever. It's more like, who the hell are these dudes? Right. That's what we played. We played that thing where we were able to incubate, make records, develop a quite sizable local following and then Minneapolis you know that's not small that's a two million plus city it's like two million people we're playing all over venues guys young guys like you are coming out it's a very buzzed band at that time 1997 1998 and we took that confidence on the road you know we would get in the van and do it punk rock style play anywhere and then mm -hmm. in Chicago all the times got to know Ken Vandermark and those guys and then playing New York and and having my friends already kind of being some of my peers that I grew up with being in New York, Craig Tabor and Reed Anderson, Ethan Iverson, speaking of what's in the water in Minneapolis. And right, right, right. Those guys are spreading the word about Happy Apple. We'd roll in and be like, man, you got to hear these guys. You know, this is not some jam band from Boulder. These guys are something else. You know, who knows? <laughs> like you said, the stigma of like you're from Minneapolis and L.A. is like, really? What is that? You know? And then you think to yourself, and we would think to ourselves, we would roll into Los Angeles with a massive attitude, you know, just like, <laughs> just going to kill you. That's what our attitude was. <laughs> we'd just be like, Los Angeles jazz, we'd be laughing, you know. <laughs> How did that work out? That attitude? Fantastic. How did that? <laughs> I mean, you know, because we just didn't. How about this, Steve? It was like the hardcoreness, that's what I'm trying to come back around saying. It's like, it's like you, you're less intimidated. How about mm -hmm. that? Mm -hmm. When you come out of Minneapolis, it's like you're you're held accountable for the art level of what you're doing. You're you're, you're held accountable for that, but you're also held accountable for the the the, the 
unapologetic nature of your intent. And that doesn't yeah. mean ego, you know, that can be read very wrong, you know, it can be read as like some egotistical, you know, chest, you know, pounding. But really, it's much more like, no, we, this is unique music. And we're making this as our own music. We're making a sound that's coming regionally at you now. And that's what I think is missing from a lot of American art these days is regional, regional sounds. Wow. Okay. I, I kind of want you to say more about that. Why do you think it's missing? Well, precisely what you brought up, the two main cities, so Los Angeles and New York. So you have people being funneled through those cities because those are business centers. Right. And in order to get business done, they have to look a certain way, kind of like a priori, like before you even begin your journey in those cities, you have to, you already know what you're supposed to look like and what you're supposed to sound like. Yeah, it's almost like... I think you have a greater chance, even though, of course, there have been art heydays in New York that are just, you know, that change the world. But, and I, and I think that Los Angeles is having a, uh, over the last 15 or so years, having a creative uh, renaissance. Um, when yeah. I was out there, it did not, uh, which was the 90s. I didn't feel it anyway. Maybe someone will argue that and then we can fight physically. <laughs> That's my new thing, Steve. Just anybody tries to argue with me, I just ask them to come over and fight. Physically? Yeah. It's just, is I'm it just, like gloves on or gloves off? No, gloves off, of course, in the backyard. Like UFC? UFC. Yeah. UFC with no, even those are fingerless, uh, no gloves. Right. Do you have a cage in your backyard for that? No, it's just open. The backyard's open. That's what makes it even more interesting. You could use like shit, like the lawn chairs and stuff to... You can. And I let people run away. That's why I put it in my backyard. Because you can <laughs> run down the alley if you want. That's typically what happens. And that's how you win your arguments. A weed whacker, and I start winging, I start throwing the weed whacker while it's on at someone after they've argued with me about something. <laughs> no, I'm basically saying that. Okay, so I went off track there. Um, uh, you know, the, those business centers, which of course there's some. Fan, I mean, it, you, it would be completely ridiculous to not consider the strength of the musicians in both those communities. But oftentimes the pressure to go to those communities creates an anemic scenario within the community of Kansas City, within the community of Phoenix, within the community of Fort Worth, Texas, within the community of whatever. And what can start to happen sans maybe New Orleans, where you have this sort of cultural backdrop of New Orleans musicians are like they're not necessarily going, I gotta move to New York to be able to play some swing area jazz or whatever, you know. Right. We're not thinking that. But 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 this pressure to be involved with those scenes versus the pressure to actually create something original, create something like actually like that sounds like it's a language from your world, from your whatever your bleak Midwestern landscape is. Hmm. You know, if you listen to something like uh Remember Bright Eyes, you know, remember that uh okay, well yeah. you know, Lincoln, Nebraska or something. That sounds like that. That there's there's something in the way that some groups, I mean, those groups in the early 90s, like Nirvana and everything, that sounded like that scene, you know. Right. Los Angeles attempted to recreate that scene shortly thereafter. I mean, I was in Los Angeles. I know the amount of horrific, you know, like second-tier grunge bands that appeared. <laughs> so what happens is, is in, you know, in New York, of course, there's, you know, they you could call the Lower East, Lower East Side art movement of the late 70s, early 80s to be one of the last great truly cultural shifting art movements that really originated in New York. I mean, I don't, <clears throat> I don't mean to say that things, amazing stuff isn't happening, but of course the, my members of the, my, you know, the way I formed the bad plus, for instance, 
we used the backdrop of New York's business center and being able to be visible, very highly visible. I mean, those guys were already out there. Reed and Ethan had been living in New York forever. And they saw Happy Apple and they were like, man, we want to do a band too. They were sick of having these disparate, you know, like, oh, we got it. We made a record and then now we got to get whoever to play it live because this guy's on tour with this person and this person's on tour with this person. So he put together a very high level pickup band. But it ultimately ends up being, you know, virtuosos stuck together in this sort of virtuoso cauldron instead of an actual like we have made a sound together. It's a committed thing. There are no charts on stage. Mm -hmm. We know our music. We roll in and it can only be played by these guys. There's no subs. That is what makes fans of the music, as far as I'm concerned. That's what makes enthusiasts for this music, not just an incredible saxophone player. You know, wow. but, it, but, but a band, a band sound. When you go to see Radiohead, that's who you're seeing. You don't see eight, yeah. you, don't see, you don't see three guys subbing. You don't see, who, who's that guy on guitar? It used to be Johnny Greenwood. Oh, this is a guy named Phil Jackson. He's from, you know, Johnny couldn't make it because he's, um, he's out with, uh, you know, Steve Coleman right now. I mean, the thing <laughs> is, is that's our, that was our thought, our thought. And the Bad Plus followed in those footsteps, but we had the backdrop of New York City to be seen happy apple had the no backdrop of right. a business center you're you're a jazz you're a, you're an improvising new music jazz music whatever you want to call it musician and you're coming from minneapolis you gotta you're gonna have to prove something when you hit new york so would you would you say that happy apple was the predecessor to the bad plus in that absolutely sense absolutely 100 percent. they would say that as well all day long yeah I mean, even though i've known reed longer reed and ethan and i've known each other since we were like 16 and I met Mike and Eric when I moved back late 20s or whatever, right before I met you. Mm -hmm. The point is, is those guys would come out and see this ragtag band that people are talking about, you know, in New York. That We'd roll in and be like, they, they were so psyched. They were like early major supporters, especially Reed. You know, Reed was making little inroads with the scene in Brooklyn. You know, got Kurt Rosenwinkel, Mark Turner, all those guys. And then, you know, he ended up, you know, Craig Taborn was there playing with Tim Byrne. Craig, who I continue to play with to this day, and he's from Minneapolis. We all, me and reading Rick, Craig grew up here together. So there is another example. I mean, Craig Taborn is from another planet completely. I mean, he's inherent. Um, he, he, he's the in, he inherited the Sun Ra mantle, as far as I'm concerned, of like the modern jazz musician making music that hasn't been made before he made it. And so there's another Minneapolis cat. And so he would bring people down. I remember where he brought Tim Byrne down to see us once. We're playing tonic. And Tim Byrne was like, holy shit, who are these guys? I mean, it was like, you know, avant-garde cabaret on the microphone. And then you have this, you know, long form insanity with this saxophone player looking like he's having a riddling fit on stage. Let me, let me just say this for my listeners. The Happy Apple Live experience, which I already mentioned to you, was so formative for me when I first heard it. It includes you riffing on a, a vocal mic. It, I mean, the band is just sax, bass, drums, jazz trio, no vocals. But then you've got a speaking mic to introduce songs, which just turns into eight to ten minute rants <laughs> that are, are clearly like comedic. I mean, I mean for, for those of you listening who know Dave King, you're familiar with Rational Funk and the other aspects of his presence online that are comedy oriented. For people who don't know you, I just want to say, you're funny as hell. And that's like, 
that's an intention from, of yours. You're not up there accidentally cracking jokes. I remember you saying that sometimes Mike would look at you and maybe like need a minute to catch his breath after the last song, and so you'd just dive off into a stand-up routine. And that yeah, was improvised was, as well, right? Absolutely. And well, thank you again. I mean, again, I, 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 I'm, I'm sure some of these things, these diatribes, have been painful, but 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 the but the fact is they are improvised and they they are organically, you know, birthed. I mean, you know, this it's in a very intense band live, as you know, and mm -hmm. it would be like Mike would just be looking at me like, you know, his face was purple. You know what I mean? And, like, <laughs> and I'd be like, man. So I just start talking. And that became a thing where it's just like start talking very randomly to the audience or talking about whatever. And then also five minutes goes by and people are enjoying it, whatever. I never set out to. Uh, it started to turn into the fact that it was one of the things that people would expect, like, you know, if you go see this band, it's not just going to be, you know, the, the saxophone solo, bass solo, drum solo, and three, you know, triway, you know, jazz solo, crossfire or whatever, and, and and then play the next song and the next song and the next song. It becomes a sort of a, an evening, <clears throat> an interesting combination of raconteur, um, avant-garde music. The whole thing kind of becomes <clears throat> a non-planned theater piece. Oh, that's really well said. A non-planned yeah. theater piece in its entirety. Yeah. Yeah, I saw exactly. you guys play probably 30 to 40 times per year for about five years uh, during my college experience when, when I was studying with you privately. And there was a period of time where you were giving me free lessons in exchange for me driving you around to gigs. Do you remember this? <laughs> and I, I'm taking you to the Uptown Bar to play a show with 12 Rods. And or we're driving over to the 400 bar for you to play a show with Happy Apple, and I'm I'm watching you every night, uh, not just play this music, but also watching you engage with your friends and your bandmates and with the club owners afterwards. It it was a very practical lesson on what it means to be a musician fully because I I saw you play on stage the same way that you spoke to others the same way that you interacted. Like you said, this kind of non-planned theater piece. Mm -hmm. Like you were carrying your performance life the exact same way that you carried your real life. And it was compelling. It, it enabled me to close a handful of loops, just educationally speaking, as I watched you. Like, oh, that's why he's doing that. That's why he's playing that way, because he's yeah. feeling that way. Yeah. Like I, I could see your feelings. I could hear your feelings. Uh, through your instrument and through your just your presence no again thank you you know i think it's super important to kind of be real and to to bring to the to the work kind of what what your emotional template is and your sort of you know your your emotional spectrum if you will and not not formulate yourself based on what you think is expected but more like you formulate your 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 artwork based on who you are that's what i hear you saying about the regional thing exactly like the authenticity that's present when someone's bringing who they are and where they're from to their art correct that's the that's the edge that you can sometimes get you know if you're let's say you're raised in new york and you're, you're surrounded by immense cultural uh advanced advanced cultural opportunities as far as art 
like if you're if you're someone that you know can go to the museum scenes and see anyone play at any given night of the week it's like oh i'm gonna see no, no, every night of the week well what can what can happen is you can start to feel not number one you can start to feel overwhelmed number two you can start to feel the pressures of fitting into certain constructs Mm-hmm. But when you're from when you're from a mid-sized city, even though all of the stuff would come through, I saw everybody playing, you know, either the Dakota or the Walker Art Center. But it's a, an event to see Bill Frizzell at the Walker Art Center. It's not like I, you know, see Bill Frizzell five times a week in New York if you live there or whatever. And right. so you start you start to use your slight isolation as a way to create your own language. And I'm not saying necessarily that. You know, like, oh, you know, you know, it's you have to like it, but it, 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 you cannot deny, I think, if you know stuff about modern jazz or modern creative music, that Happy Apple is, is a unique band. And same absolutely us. These are unique bands. They're not the Bad Plus is a unique piano trio. You can't you might not like it. Or you might love it. You know, if you were intelligent, you'd love it. If you if you were if you were not intelligent and you were really mean. <laughs> and you wouldn't, you know, if you were a mean person, you wouldn't like it. And they'd probably run away from you d- during a fight. Yes, they would have to. <laughs> Steve, I'll do anything. So the point is, is, <laughs> you know, you have to deal with the fact that these are personal languages. And, and those are born from um, somewhat, t- uh, sometimes I think those are, those are born from this sort of less, you know, like um, included, you know, inclusion can sometimes bring about this banal thing. And, and we kind of know that as far as the, the societal fabrics. It's yeah. like majorities don't necessarily do anything right. Or it's kind of shown that way. Like wow. majority thinking is like really fucking overrated. And actually some of the heaviest shit, culturally, spiritually, everything that comes out of the, especially the American landscape, is is comes from not being included half the time and more than wow. half the time and so you can have this thing where you can feel the loneliness but let's say ornette coleman you know he sounds like his thing from fort worth texas you know what i mean like those guys didn't just like accidentally appear in new york city with a. he rolled into new york with a full-blown concept he didn't develop his concept in new york he didn't develop it in los angeles he developed it in Fort Worth, and it's because in many, I think, risking hubris here and explaining what I know about Ornette Coleman, I think it's, it's how he interpreted bebop, mixed with some Texas blues riffs, basically. Right, right. And then he interprets bebop with these you know, muscle memory erasure lines. It's in, in, incredible, but it's in a way it's interpreting bird, you know what I mean? And, and, and it, it's like, Oh, you mean there's chord changes? And there's, I, I'm just, you know, this is, this is how I hear bebop or whatever. And so the, it's like, I don't know, man. I think that that seismic cultural um, explosive invention oftentimes comes from outside. Look at the punk rock movement comes from, or some of the great, you know, it, improvisers, it, they don't, they're not necessarily to totally developed, you know, in these larger scenes. And that's kind of what I mean about regional art. If we're going to talk about the blues or the Delta blue, or we're talking about Laurel Canyon's, you know, scene, that sounds like that scene in the late 60s, early 70s in L.A. You know what I mean? The Joni Mitchell thing. Mm-hmm. Whatever. These are scenes that happen around clubs. If you have, you know, CBGBs in New York, whatever. 
They're micro scenes. And I just think that's something I hope continues to be fostered more and more with the ability to get heard outside these giant business centers. Is it some kid from Tulsa is going to make, look at the flaming lips. How about that? I just brought up Oklahoma. Right. Look look at the flaming lips, man. Those guys are proudly outside. They're proudly in their Oklahoma bubble. If I can paraphrase you, you're saying that larger, larger scenes, larger, almost like institutions form this template that ends up producing less potent creativity than when you're ostracized and left to kind of a small sample size where you have to just figure out your shit on your own. Yeah, it can. I really believe that. And and I really believe that's one of the reasons why some of the more groundbreaking cats that come through the scenes in New York and Los Angeles and other bigger cities, Nashville, whatever, is they their experience, the way that they sound still has a part of their sort of upbringing and their 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 demographic and their and their sort of geographical upbringing. And I think that's the same with European musicians now. A lot of very strong European um, improvising musicians are appearing in Israeli you know uh, musicians. Mm-hmm. And they're bringing their thing, and it's becoming more and more of like, oh, you know, those cats, they, those Israeli cats, they have a vibe. They sound like their area, you know. And they, and 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 then then you think to yourself, gosh, I, America is so vast. It's like, you know, you really want. I really want to hear somebody's, you know, I want to hear the soil where they where they where they grew right. up. You know I mean? Right. I want to hear that breezy West Coast thing, or I want to hear. You know, cats from Portland and Seattle sounding a little bit noisy and punky. I want to. I want to hear. You know, the Atlanta thing. I want to hear what you do. You hear it sometimes, especially you know a lot of the cats from Houston. You hear this thing from, and so I'm. I really have my antenna out for, you know, somebody that carries their life experience into their art uh, instead of necessarily wanting to be the cat and to fit in and. And to be like, you know, like I can nail the, you know, I, I, you, you move to New York and you get in that heat cauldron of like, I got to be the guy, you know. Right. Sometimes the, the creative side is sacrificed in the in the pursuit of being being able to do it all or being the first call person or whatever, you know. You can easily I, say that Brian Blade sounds like where he's from, you know, somehow esoterically. I feel that personally in my own career with songwriters and pop artists and the the desire or the temptation maybe to become the dominant person in the food chain. Like I, I want to be called for every gig. Yep. Like I've, I've felt that palpably at many junctures in my career. And it's only within the past few years that I've embraced like, no, I, I sound a certain way and I'll wait for the people who want my sound to reach out to me instead of trying to wear all these different hats at once, which you're pointing out actually kind of weakens the sound overall. Yeah, I think the long game is the one it's it's a longer game but it's the one that pays off more. I think ultimately is if you stay true to this what you're thinking for yourself, Steve, which I think is very smart. I mean, a lot of people consider ambition like knocking down every door. I think there's a some saying that is actually ambition is preparing yourself to receive. Oh. You know, and putting out this thing that you're getting called for it. Now, if you think about it, like, let's let's go all the way to the top. If you're talking about L.A. and studios, let's just talk about Jim Keltner, okay? Now, yeah. Jim Keltner is not a guy that's, like, sitting around going, man, I'm going to play, you know, like, the exact thing to get every gig. Um, I'm going to, you know, be the guy that gets called for the Dua Lipa gig. It's like, it's not going to happen, 
You know what I mean? It's like, yet he's a he's the top master, and but he plays this swampy, non-click track thing that everybody, of course, knows is like the baddest shit. And but he's an LA studio legend. He's not a guy that's like legendarily on the road all the time and on, you know, and he's not a guy that's like. And he's also not a guy that's out there, you know, on jazz records or anything. Right. He's just, he's just a totally personal approach that happens to also be a huge open arm. I'm going to make the music better. If you call, you know, if you call Jim Keltner, shit's just going to sound better. And, and, but it's not for everything. He's not somebody that, you know, that's why there was a Jeff Beccaro and that's why there was all these other people. And that's why right now you have, you know, um, you know, other guys out there that are sort of like the Jim Keltner mantle. Um, you know, uh, what's my man's name? Um, dang, I always forget his name. You know, the guy, uh, wow. See, Steve, this is what happens when you have, you know, like when you have endured too many 30 below days outside of that. <laughs> anyway, my point is, is that, is that, you know, that's a very hyper-specific thing. Now, I would say that that is on some level, it's, it's generational, of course, because, you know, Jim came up probably before there was this pressure to play everything to a sequencer and all mm-hmm. these things and metronome started, to, you know, all these things. But the point is, is that if you have a certain thing and you hold true to that and know, everybody knows they're going to get something special from Steve Gould, you know, or whatever, I think it's headed in that direction again. I think the idiosyncratic... Um, approach in the LA scene and in other places is is on the rise hmm. and um and, and I think oh you know uh, uh, one guy you could talk about that is like guy like Matt Chamberlain for instance yeah that's not who I was trying to remember I, I can't even believe I can't remember the guy who sounds you know he sounds like himself but he sounds like Jim Keltner and I and he's fantastic and I can't believe I don't know who I'm talking you, you don't know who I'm talking about you're talking about Jay Bellarose yes yeah, that's who I'm talking about. Why? And I would apologize to Jay for not remembering. That's that has to do with my brain being completely gone at this point. Jay's Thirty below, right? And 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 Jay's got this. You know, he even takes it further. You know, right? I, I would, as far as I'm concerned, that's a guy. You're not calling that. You're not calling Jay Belarus to do some like. I mean, this is going to sound really square, but saying something like even the new Justin Bieber or something. And you got Jay Bellarus back there with a 38-inch marching bass drum and like a snare drum that has heads on it from the Revolutionary War, you know. And he's playing like a a 34-inch ride cymbal that they made one of. And he's playing it with like the brushes that are made from like duck feathers, okay. They're going to just look at him like, who the fuck is this guy? Meanwhile, in my world, in your world, that would be sick. I mean, that would sound deep, right? That reminds me of the Rational Funk episode where you play with the deer antlers. That would be deep if some cat showed up like doing that. But so Jay and I don't know Jay, but they, I bet Jay just hangs, and then the people that need Jay call Jay, and they know what they're getting. They're going to get somebody with a very deep sound and a very deep groove and a very idiosyncratic, you know, approach post Keltner kind of approach and and mm-hmm. and and that I think that that's so valuable I think that the more and more people have a deeply unique Matt Chamberlain does 
but you do as well. And that's going to be, I think, sir, your, your background is being a guy who's in, into creative music and into jazz and all these other things that you are into and your ability to handle the modern gear scene and your ability to work as a musical director. And you're, you have all of these modern uh, uh, skills, Steve, but you also are an idiosyncratic weirdo. I mean, at the end of the day, you're not yeah. a guy that's sitting around going, oh, I need to hook everything up and play the exact thing to, you know, be the guy that, you know, we, of course you want to be the guy everybody calls. Everybody wants that. But at what price? And I think you're asking yourself that, like, at what price, right. you know, you become this sort of bland assassin of perfection of, you know, like, uh, you're the perfect thing for every single gig. And that's ridiculous. At the end of the day, nobody is, you know, you don't call uh, Vinnie Cagliuta for an, uh, an up-tempo bebop gig. You know, you're like, man, you were putting together a Clifford Brown tribute. Uh, who's going to get? Oh, let's call Vinnie. It's like, no, <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't mean he isn't a complete genius. You go in and kill it, but it's not going to be the same as, you know, you, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> yes, <laughs> absolutely. Th thank you for your encouragement about my sound i that reminds me of the first lesson that i ever took with you uh when i was 19 i wonder if you remember this story i i rolled in you you asked me to play something so i i played a song from a band that i was in at the time like the band wasn't there i was just playing by myself but i was yep. you know playing from memory how the song would go and i got done and you said, "Oh, Steve, that sounds sounds great, man. Nice work. I mean, we both know you don't really know what you're doing." <laughs> and I was like, "What?" <laughs> and then you said this, and I'll never forget. You're like, "Well, I mean, everything you played sounded great, but why did you play it? Do you even remember what you played? Like, could you give me a reason for why you chose to play what you played?" <laughs> and I mean, that was. That was the beginning of a two-year-long, like, intense learning season from you under your mentorship of just, like, that kind of potent, hey, we're, we're trying to make a statement here. We're not just freewheeling around doing whatever we want. Yeah. And that mattered to me. Do you remember that? I do, and I remember, and I still teach that way, and I hold myself as accountable. So it's always the same for myself, you know. I I, I think that of course where style comes from is making choices, and right. when you're just in an autopilot scenario of all of these things, you know, like oh, it's we're trading eights now, so this is how it sounds, or um, I'm going to fill this dance card with exactly what is historically, per, uh, you know, the the perfect historical perspective on everything instead of infusing it with some sort of personal life experience and having a very strong technical background and, and historical perspective, which is what we talked about a lot as well. Right. But that thing of making a choice in the moment when you have a certain amount of real estate to work with, what are you going to do? And I, and I talk to a lot of my students about that to this day. It's just, there's a great quote as an architect. I think it's Bruce Mao, the architect, and, and the, the quote I use all the time is, now that we can do everything, what do we do? Right. And, as, as we're in a we're in we're in a sort of technical golden age on the drums, and then I'm not sure we're in a style golden age though. You had me learn all of these <laughs> rudiments. I I remember distinctly we 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 had a, a notebook of like rudiments every week, and you had said at the outset of it like we're gonna we're gonna hit the rudiment thing hard for about the next six to eight months, and then we're gonna have a book burning ceremony, <laughs> where we where we take your notebook and we burn it together and we do some chants. And then we never talk about rudiments ever again. 
because no one gives a shit. No one cares about rudiments. You need to learn them so that you can play what you want to play, but you need to never play a rudiment for the rudiment's sake, ever. <laughs> well, those are those hardcore 90s days. Wow, I was so moved by that. I still agree with that. That philosophy, of course, is just... So do I now. You know, um, being able to know why we're doing what we're doing and hold ourselves accountable to make choices that are that are based in our uh, our um, feelings at the at the time and your ability to pull it off and also being vulnerable to um, not only being the wrong person sometimes but not pulling it off all the time. I cite people like Jack DeJanet a lot, one of my great heroes. You can tell that Jack DeJanet is is playing some shit that he hasn't worked out sometimes. <laughs> And when I hear somebody that's just playing like everything with zero vulnerability, that you just know it's going to be fine. After after a minute, it's almost like having an experience where you're desensitized to something. Yeah. You know, you walk into a strip club, like you're you're going to go to your strip club experience when you're younger. And first minute, you're like, holy shit, what's going on in here? But within a few minutes, it's just like it becomes what? You know what I mean? Whereas instead you're at a bus stop and someone is wearing something that is tight or it looks whatever, and you're like, man, that's that's a very fine looking human being. Uh, and you take that with you in this way where it's not desensitized. It's just sort of like you have enough there to, you know, like use your imagination and you can have a moment that just juices you up a little bit and does whatever. You hear what I'm trying to say? I know Absolutely. But it's no, like context. It's very obvious, right? It's like if you're if you're if you're around somebody that's nailing it nonstop and playing like over the course of an evening every single displaced sixteenth note that somebody can play, and you're filling up every single phrase with patterns, versus somebody like Jack, where you go and see you know, Keith Jarrett trio, and Jack is improvising. It doesn't mean he and he is nailing it, but you know what I mean. Like all of a sudden, it's like that band is. I've heard. The Jared Trio turn the beat around. I've heard them, you know, they're impressionistic. They're going for it. Yeah, you know? yeah. Keith typically knows exactly where he is. But <laughs> again, you'll hear that Gary and Jack, like, wow, they're, 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 so pretty. they're hanging it out there. Well, to me, that is infinitely more exciting and accessible emotionally. It's like, not only is DeJanet a genius and technically ridiculous, but he also leaves you, like, feeling there's some drama and there's some there's vulnerability in there. There's you know like he's looking for something night after night after night after night after night. And there's a lot of fantastic players like that. And you could say that Jim Keltner's that way in the LA studio scene. He's rolling in with a certain amount of like beautiful artistic vulnerability. He doesn't sound like I'm just gonna crush this kind of thing. He's like right. wow, he's got he's, there's something sympathetic in it. There's something vulnerable in it. And the great improvisers, Paul Motion was like that. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like Paul, you know, was a pretty intentful, you know, he had a lot of intent and a strong personality. But in the music, it's very, very beautifully vulnerable at times and beautifully um, sensitive and not thinking only drumistically or, or just a drummerly approach to everything. He's thinking musically, artistically. And those right. are my heroes, ultimately, are the ones that are just, they're taking that extra step. I'll say this, that's what I learned from you. People are often surprised when they find that I studied with you. When they when they when I tell them that or when they hear that. Like, I heard you study with Dave King. You don't play anything like him. I'm like, oh well, 
yeah, nobody in the avant-garde jazz world is hiring me, if that's what you mean. Like, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm not going to bring, like, verbatim transcriptions of Dave's playing to a Sarah Bareilles gig right. or something. Like, that doesn't... But trying to do something musically and trying to feel as opposed to just regurgitate a precise part that, that I learned from you. And yeah, well, that's a huge compliment and you are doing that, you know, thank and you. that is going to serve you in the long run. No, you really are. I mean, I don't want really to you off, but I'm just saying like, that's, that's most certainly what should be gleaned from anyone is just a thought process. It doesn't matter what kind of music you're playing. I and mean, you and I know that there, you know, the, we used to talk about, I think we used to talk about people like Stuart Copeland and people like that, where it's just like, you know, that the drummer in those situations, Elvis Costello with Pete Thomas, mm -hmm. it makes the sound of the band. You know, you, you, we could sit and make fun of Rush or, we, you know, people that are cynical and go like, oh, prog rock guys, Rush or whatever. But think about Rush without Neil Peart, you know what I mean? Right. Think about, I mean, then you'd be really going like, whoa. Uh, what is the, what is this? You know, I would anyway. Sure. But you'd have you know you, you could just see that the 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 drummer's sort of like personality and and idiosyncratic, you know, I use that term a lot, but like the uh, approaches that if someone like Stuart Copeland rolled in today and he was trying to be on the studio scene, you know what I mean? One would hope we live in a world that that would be embraced. I don't think so. Right. You know, I'm not sure. You know what I mean? I think it would be sort of like, well, hang on now, son. What are you doing over there? But you go back and you listen to the police, everybody knows. You know, you just listen to the police and it's just like, how do you not know? That's like the baddest shit that's ever been on a hit song. You know? Oh, it's but deafening. Yeah. Like his presence is is so, like his footprint is so massive. It's massive. In that sense, yeah. It's just, it's, and it's, and it's multi-generational. You can't come across that if you're a young cat and not know now you got to deal with that guy. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? No one even touches it to this day, as far as I'm concerned. And that doesn't mean you have to be into his, you know, his, his immense presence, which is huge. You know, if you want something softer, you know, you know, if you don't, if you're playing some sort of Carol King vibe, you don't want Stuart Copeland in there, but I'm just talking about presence in far as individual stylistic innovation right. within an within a landscape that doesn't necessarily re reward that and i just think someone like you being able to glean like oh or you know thinking originally here and there or if i have a moment to express something someone like steve jordan's a great example if i have some if, I, if there's a moment to express something steve jordan's going to play a little fill in whatever you hear him in from, you know, expensive winos, uh, you know, like era of uh, Keith Richards to, I mean, I grew up watching David Letterman and listening to Steve Jordan play and just going, he's, he's, so, he's so special, you know, yeah. and but he, he, his groove is so incredible, but all of a sudden you hear him do one little fill, it could be, could be one little blip blip, and it's different. <laughs> It's just different. There's something about it that's just he takes that real estate and he personalizes it. And that hit me so hard. And I just think your your trajectory is one. You you talk to Steve Jordan probably, he's he's talking about Roy Haynes. You know, he's not he's not talking to you necessarily about like the pro studio guy thing. Right. And so it doesn't mean that Steve sits down and plays bebop like Roy Haynes. It doesn't you know, it's not like Steve's is in the now he sings, now he sobs, you know, like reunion <laughs> He's himself, but his approach, and you, you know, you hear Elvin Jones in Jim Keltner, it's, mm -hmm. and he's not, he's not playing any, he's not playing India by Coltrane, you know, you hear it, 
And I think that with you, someone like you, I think you could, you could say you could hear your upbringing of checking out progressive music, not only from Happy Apple, of course, but tons of other things you were checking out when you were 20, you know? I, I should say this on my Q&A Thursday series that I do on Instagram. Somebody asked last week if when I recorded the Bill Mike Band record, if I was listening a lot to Lost Time by 12 Rods. And, and I was like, yeah, I was. Good ear. Because that... That was absolutely a formational, like the your recordings on Lost Time were coursing through my creative mind when the Bill Mike band was making our records. And yeah, I haven't been in a band like Bill Mike in recent years, but that that pedigree is still in me as a listener and as a as a student of the instrument. Man, it's you. I remember seeing you back then with that group and that was incredible you were playing incredible i never thought to myself well that sounds like lost time it's just, i mean and again you were talking about a record you know of course you and i have talked about this i mean i play a lot of music outside jazz and improvising things as well with, with, mm -hmm. with and that was a record that i had made years ago but it was like that again you heard that approach which you know you don't have to dig it you don't have to think it's great it's fine but there is there are risks being taken and there are absolutely and there are artistic uh, statements trying to be made and that's kind of why i bring up somebody like a Stuart copeland or a pete thomas or a john bonham or a steve jordan jim keltner within any construct it's like where are those unique drum statements and we can do that that's the thing we have the power to do that mm -hmm. and take the time to actually consider that we we all can say something that's beyond just you know, uh, blowing people's minds or doing the, 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 the riff that's the most drummerly riff instead of, you know, when I cite all those guys, when I cite Steve Jordan, I don't, I don't cite him as like a drummy guy. I, I cite him, I cite him as a, as a all around thinker. It's like the great basketball players that see the whole court. They're not just draining threes or whatever. Right. It's like, Steve Jordan sounds like he has the world of music inside one groove for John Mayer or something, you know? Well, you speak the same way as I listen to you. I mean, for anybody, if you want to know what lessons with Dave King were like, this this is it. Like talking with you for an hour like this and hearing you reference over and over again, cross-indexing these various eras, locations, cities, and sounds, uh, musicians, drummers, but you're talking about architects and painters, and these, I mean, now you're making a basketball metaphor and you've got a picture of what music is that absolutely transcends just your instrument, just the drum set. Well, that, thank you, Stephen. I've really enjoyed talking with you. I, I cite you as one of my greatest, uh, well, you, former pupils. And I always do appreciate you giving it up to me. That makes me feel great because I feel like there are a handful of guys that I've been able to teach that have really connected with me but you are just the highest level and i mean that and your highest level player and guy thanks man so thank you i appreciate being on your podcast and i think you are carrying that tradition forward your minneapolis roots and your and your um your willingness to kind of go for something and and also have the 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 the, the foundational shit to back it up which is <laughs> thanks important. buddy it's important and uh, it's important that you were you were alive and aware of some of these things and i also fantastic that you remember the art and architecture lectures because those continue as well in fact i'm about to give one right now to somebody <laughs> unsuspecting, some unsuspecting man that has paid me to you know give them a drum lesson they have no idea what's about to instead happen. you're just gonna be talking about basquiat and warhol the whole that's time exactly, that's exactly <laughs>
right. My most buddy. famous podcast guest. My most famous podcast guest. Dave Steve. <laughs> thanks, man. Steve, thanks. Love you, man. Love you, too. See ya. Well, as you've probably heard, Dave King is an articulate guy. He's a very studied guy and experienced, heavily experienced in the art world. I just enjoy every conversation that I get a chance to have with him. The music in this episode so far is all various performances that Dave has been a part of. As a drummer, as a composer, as a band leader, his discography is extensive. Lost Time by 12 Rods is an album that stands out to me in my history of just listening to him and studying his playing. He's also in a band called Halloween Alaska, their self-titled album, which is their first, another standout for me. The Bad Plus is the group that he's most known for being in. And I think their first album, These Are the Vistas, and their second album, Give, are my two favorites. Although the record that they made with Joshua Redman is also fantastic. He did a record with Julian Lange a couple years ago. I guess it was three years ago now. And then Happy Apple. The d- entire discography of Happy Apple is important to me, both musically as a source of education and inspiration, but also emotionally, just as part of my journey into adulthood and the music that was the soundtrack of all these very formative years of my life. Dave has countless other records in his discography. The ones I've mentioned so far are just some of my personal favorites, mostly centering around Happy Apple. I have a playlist of Happy Apple's music on my Spotify page, which I'll link to on the Patreon, or you can just look it up on Spotify yourself. I even included a Happy Apple track in a listening companion, listening exercise thing that I did on the Patreon some weeks ago for the How to Listen to Music episode on the Steve Gould Show. I'm going to end this episode with another Happy Apple track. This is a ballad from their third record called Body Popping, Moonwalking, Top Rocking. And here's the thing about Happy Apple. They've got this breadth of intensity that they'll cover as a band. Pretty outrageous, screeching saxophones, crazy intense drums, the kind of music that feels like it accompanies a nightmare or bad dream of some kind. And then all the way over to this side of the spectrum where, I mean, this music is so delicate. It's so gentle, peaceful, and beautiful. And I think there's something powerful about a band that can do both of those things when each of those sounds are informed by an ability to do the opposite. I don't mind music that's really intense and very kind of brash and confronting. I don't mind it. I like knowing that those musicians can play quiet also. Similarly, I really appreciate gentle music, but I want to know that you can turn the volume up and turn the power up when needed. Happy Apple is a great example of that. And probably, to be honest, probably the first example that I witnessed in my journey as not just a musician, but as a music fan. The way that these guys were able to change gears from one song to the next, just listening to them perform live and then on their recordings as well. 
Thanks again for listening to this episode of the Steve Gould Show. Hope you enjoyed the interview with Dave. I'll leave you with this song in its entirety from Happy Apple's third record, Body Popping, Moonwalking, Top Rocking. The track is called Where Does a Stranger Go on Christmas Eve?
the Steve Gould Show.